We're in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be doing verses 27 through 38. And uh, as you turn there, I'm just going to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We value it. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us as we look through it. uh, That you would minister to us beyond even what is said in a message. That you would speak to people's hearts and minds. Ministering to them where they're at in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week's message was from the Beatitudes, and I shared about how they aren't spiritual laws, they're not spiritual commandments, they're not things for us to work towards. We're not to strive to be poor, we're not to strive to be hungry, we're not to strive to be weeping, because those are sadistic things to do. And they're not teachings on how to be blessed, because if you're poor, you're hungry, and you're weeping, does that really mean that you're blessed? These aren't commandments or laws, as we've mentioned. And in fact, these aren't instructions to do anything. This isn't a manual to try to tell you to do it yourself, and this is how you're going to get blessed by doing this stuff. What these are, these are a proclamation. These are an announcement that the kingdom of God is available even to the poor, the hungry, and the weeping. And so the kingdom of God is present. It's available. It is directly accessible To us, the direct rule of God, the reign of God, is offered to us through the life of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. The blessedness Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, it lies in the kingdom of God and it's not in the condition. So it's not in the condition of being poor, hungry, or weeping. It's not in the condition, it's being in the kingdom of God. So it's this availability of the kingdom of God that Jesus has offered us, that's the blessing. It's not the condition. So, for example, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he didn't mean that the poor somehow earned their blessing because they were poor, that they had this poor condition. Rather, it's despite their poor condition that they are blessed because the availability of the kingdom of God is available to someone like that, despite their condition. So they have been invited into his kingdom of grace despite their poverty, despite their hunger, despite their state of weeping. That's why they're blessed. It's despite their condition. And that regardless of condition, and it's not even listing every condition, just think of every, the conditions there. Think of your own beatitude. Blessed are the blank. Because not every condition is, is put there, right? We're just given three here, but put that regardless of your condition, Jesus offers us entrance into the kingdom of God despite any deplorable condition that we might be experiencing. So it's not just about this accumulation of biblical knowledge, accumulation of laws, accumulation of legalisms, and this list of things to continue on our checklist to say like, oh, how am I going to get blessed? How am I going to get whatever from God? And you're just checking this stuff off. It's not any of that stuff. What this is is about a transformation, a regeneration within yourself, within your heart, within your character through Jesus in the availability of the kingdom of God. So from the Beatitudes, we move into this next section of Scripture where I think some of us may wonder, how in the world is it possible to be a Christian? This is impossible, right? Love my enemies. Do good to those who hate me. Bless those who curse me. Pray for those who abuse me. Are you kidding me? How is that possible? And I want to tell you that, yes, Jesus was kidding, and you don't have to do any of that stuff. Jesus meant what he said. Jesus meant what he said. 
And why did Jesus instruct his disciples this way? A little bit of background. Back in that day, the religious establishment of that day, they really oppressed the people there. They viewed the last in the kingdom. They viewed the cursed of the kingdom as these type of people. The poor, the hungry, the weeping. Saying, you know, something's wrong in your life because you're poor. Something, God's not blessing you because you're weeping. You know, you're hungry. Something's wrong there. So there was this religious oppression on them. There was this superstitious type of belief that, you know, if you're rich, if you're well-fed, if you're just, you know, without any serious issues in your life, you must be blessed by God. You must be doing something right. Because that's why you have this stuff. That's why you have this condition. God is really taking care of you. you. You must be doing something really great spiritually. So it creates this religious social order here and this social order created created this oppressive state right for those who were less privileged because they had no hope in their hopeless condition oh yes god's treating me this way oh i must be some there's sin in my life or i must have not said the right things or i treated my dog wrong whatever right so so what does jesus do flips it all upside down he says the kingdom of god isn't for the first of the world it's for the last Right? All those people look at, that look at themselves as these first, as these blessed people, they're, they're just pushed off the pedestal by Jesus. And he's saying, the last are those who the, who the world considers cursed. They have a place in the kingdom of God, just like you guys do. Right? And it's through me. It's through Jesus. And so Jesus blesses the hopeless. He makes them first by making the kingdom of God open to them. Jesus reveals God's heart in a time when people were accustomed to following a to-do list. Following this legalistic list of, you know, what, what do I have to do? And what do I have to abide by? And, and so they were given this thing and they were abiding by it. And they go down their to-do list. And, but it never showed them God's heart. Because God's heart wasn't necessarily revealed behind that law. And so here Jesus is and sh- showing God's heart. See, what did, what did those to-do lists do? What did that do? What it did was it created this legalistic way of life. Like, I follow this stuff. Then I'm good. I don't have to go any deeper than that. I, I follow that stuff. Right? That, and that as long as they can do that to-do list, they're okay. They're fine. But Jesus goes a little deeper. He goes beyond the surface. Jesus wants to set people free from this legalistic thought. He wants to set people free from this oppressive way of thinking. Because if you're hopeless, there's no way out. So he wants to set these people free. He goes straight into the heart. He goes inside. And while people are concerned what they're doing on the outside, Jesus goes deeper. He goes beyond that surface. He goes beyond that facade. He goes into their heart. And so within this next section of scripture, he's going to teach us, he's going to show us that, yes, we respect the law. We need to go deeper beyond the surface of the law. Right? We, we, we need to know the depths of what being good really means. What does truly being good mean? Right? To, to transform, to regenerate the heart so that what naturally flows out of it is good. Not that you're acting good. Right? Not that you're living this fake life where you do something good, but inside it's still rotten. Inside you're still rotten. And to have a kingdom goodness and not this legalistic goodness, what's the difference between the two? 
What's the difference between kingdom goodness and legalistic goodness? Kingdom goodness, it values God and it values his will. It values his people as he does. What does legalistic goodness do? Legalistic goodness values people and their perception. It values the people and their perception of you. God's not in that. Right? You, you want to look a certain way rather than be a certain way. And, and how you really are before God and man. You want to put these facades on showing that, hey, I'm a good person. I do this and I do this. How do we get from being a legalistic, legalistically good person to a kingdom-driven person? It's from intention, being intentional. Right? It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just float by. It doesn't just kind of like osmosis or something like that. We have to be intentional with our actions, intentional with our thoughts, and we don't have to look any further than Jesus himself. So I'd like us to take a look at a few statements Jesus made here. And the three we're going to look at are unless statements. They all begin with unless. The first one is John chapter 3, verse 3. The second one is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. And the third one is Matthew 18, verse 3. So let's look at John chapter 3, verse 3 first. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that you've become a new creation. right? Unless you become a new creation, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Matthew 5.20 Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means that you have to understand that holiness isn't about acting different. Holiness is about being different. right? It's being different, not pretending. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? It means that you become childlike. Don't become a child. You become childlike. And so you become childlike and you exercise that dependence. You exercise that trust. You exercise that confidence of a child in God. So it's a state of being. It's not a state of acting. Being, being born again, being holy, being childlike, not acting like a new creation or acting holy or acting childlike. It's about being and it's about in your heart. What's the transformation happening in your heart, in your character? And so Jesus looks deeper into your heart and it's not this external thing trying to do what's right on the outside while all on the inside you're just messed up. What's going on inside? going on inside your heart. That's what, that's what was happening in Jesus' day. It happens quite a bit in our day. People who think that righteousness can be earned by what you do. And it's really simple. If you want to go take a poll or ask some questions of people, you go out on the street and you ask them, hey, you know what? What's going to happen to you when you die? More often than not, the answers that I've received when I ask that question, which isn't often too, too often, it's kind of morbid. But when I do ask that, there's a I don't, I don't know what happens. You just, you just die. But you know, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I, I, I give a lot of money to charities. I, I volunteer for the such and such an organization. I, I do this. I, I do that. And, but righteousness is not earned. We cannot earn righteousness. Right? Righteousness is only available through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that makes you righteous before God. You cannot do anything yourself. To make yourself righteous. And the awesome thing of the kingdom life is that we can really become different from the inside out. We can do that. 
And it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on us earning it. Jesus does it. Jesus spoke at a different kind of heart that can be birthed only by entering the kingdom of God, which is available through him. Now, the kingdom heart, where, where in these next situations, these next illustrations that Jesus brings up in our text, he's going to go to the center of our hearts. He's going to show us why that without him, we're in serious trouble. And Jesus, through his life, through his teachings, he is leading us towards love. And it's not just love as in your friend or love as in a romantic thing. It's an unconditional love towards an inner goodness that is evident in an outer goodness. Right? Not just external goodness that is void of an inner goodness, where the heart hasn't changed and, and those outward actions, those are just kind of facades because you want to portray to people that you're a good person, but inside you're really not. And James writes to us in James chapter 3, verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, what's in the heart is pretty evident when we hear of the evil in the world, isn't it? We, we know the lack of inner goodness, the lack of character a person who has committed evil possesses in their heart. So a, a fig tree bears figs. It doesn't bear some other fruit. An evil heart produces evil. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Within, it's our heart, it's our character. Those are the things that need transformation. Those are the things that need regeneration. And from that, that change, the behavior naturally flows out, the good behavior. It's not the other way around. Our proper actions don't change our hearts. Right? It's like washing a cup. If you just wash the outside of the cup and you don't ever get on the inside, you're just busy washing the cup, you turn it over, the inside's still dirty. But if you wash the inside of the cup, it kind of flows out, the soap suds and stuff, and you're washing it, and it kind of naturally gets clean on the outside. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the, also, that the outside may be also clean. So Jesus is going to show us this difference between this old morality that the people in that day believed back then and this new morality that he's bringing up in his day. And Jesus is going to show us what kingdom goodness is. And you'll notice that the goodness of Jesus is not aggressive, nor is it passive. It's assertive. And as we go through these verses, you need to keep in mind the verbs within these verses. So let's just hit up 27 and 28 now. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So the old morality subscribes harm for harm. You know, you, someone hates you, hate them back. Someone abuses you, abuse them back. The new morality of Jesus is to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so this hate, this cursing, this abuse, these are all traits that feed upon themselves. How do you deflate hate? 
cursing, abuse, with goodness. You deflate it with goodness, a patient goodness. And responding the way Jesus teaches. And ultimately, he demonstrated it for us in his life and also in his death. It was him being assertive in his determined love, in his determined goodness. And you know what that does? It forces people to question themselves. It forces them to, to think. Right? The, the way that the, the kingdom goodness shows those people who hate towards us, it shows them they're not in control. That they don't have any ammunition to hit back at you. Because that's what hate does, right? I hate you, you hate me. I hate you back, you hate me back. I hate you more, you hate me more. And it just keeps escalating. Kind of like when you fight your sibling. It starts out with a little punch. It's like a harder punch. Then it's a harder punch. It doesn't stop. Right? So let's look at the kingdom response. First in verse 29. Just the first half of that. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So the kingdom person is able to offer the other cheek when they're assaulted by a person. The kingdom person is also able to continue being vulnerable after being assaulted. And they don't take that defense into their own hands. The kingdom person would rather allow themselves to be hurt than let the offender get hurt and continues to be vulnerable when they were the one that was wrong. That's so hard. And you notice that he or she doesn't turn someone else's cheek or turn some community's cheek or society's cheek. This is a personal behavior, right? To one who strikes you on the cheek. So don't go about being goody two-shoes and telling people what to do and, hey, you know, yeah, turn the other cheek and all this. This is for you. And also, remember that this isn't a law. This isn't a commandment. This is not like, uh, do not steal. This is not one of those things. When looking at these illustrations, what Jesus is using, we have to think about what's appropriate. What's appropriate here? This is not to be a a vulnerable law. You have to be remain you have to remain vulnerable. This is a law. It is not. Right? If offering the other cheek means you'll be killed or maimed or you'll receive continued uh, abuse, you have to look at the bigger picture. Right? You can't just take that little snippet here and say, like, oh, I've got to turn the other cheek. Okay. You've got to look at the big picture. Right? You, we have to be ready to remove ourselves from appropriate circumstances to remove yourself. So, for example, in the case of abuse. Yes, we pray for those who abuse us, but you're not to be in bondage. You're not a sex slave. You're not someone there to be incessantly verbally berated on. You're not a punching bag. Right, so in these cases of abuse, you know, you get other people involved. You, you get them involved to help you in this abusive circumstance. You don't just turn the other cheek. That's not appropriate. Or another example is if, if you're assaulted. And you say, you know, you, your family is with you and, and you're assaulted. Maybe it's different for you, but for me, I, I'm going to act. I'm not going to wait. I don't know what that person's intent is. If they take me out, how am I going to defend my family? Right? So, so you know, you know, you got to defend your family. Right? You don't know what, what's up with that person. So, it's, I'm not saying take revenge or I'm not saying retaliate, but defend your family then and there. I think it's appropriate, which means you also have to defend yourself. So, 
It's about what's appropriate, right? Because what if that person has a gun or knife? And all they want is your wallet. Take my wallet. That's appropriate. Give, give them... But what if they say, tell your wife or your daughter or your girlfriend or whatever to take off her clothes because I'm going to rape her right now. All bets off. Right? I hope. And you, and you fight. You defend. You resist. And so it's about what's appropriate, right? You, you pray, you ask God what's appropriate. And sometimes it may mean that you resist because the situation makes you resist. It's what's appropriate. And the idea behind this teaching is not so that you endure physical pain, that you are able to endure humiliation. It's to remain appropriately vulnerable. That if you are taken advantage of, you can still be vulnerable. And something happened this morning. Pastor Jack's wife got robbed, and I think the assailant had a knife and took her purse. And I, we've been praying for them that their heart remains soft, but I really don't have any doubt that, th- that it will. Because 25 years ago, in this church, in this sanctuary, there was a person that came at knife point to Pastor Jack. And he told them, the whole congregation, to give them his money. And so Pastor Jack says, I don't have any money to give you, but I have the gospel to give you. And the guy took off and never took off with anything. But he's here 25 years later in the same neighborhood ministering here. I don't think his heart's changed. I think Pastor Jack lives this. I think he does this. Even though what happened to his wife today, they're going to be back on Friday having their Bible study here. and They're going to be praying for that guy. That's the way they are. And so you go on to the next half of that verse in verse 29. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So the kingdom person is, is, is genuinely concerned with the needs of others. Right? The kingdom person doesn't have a problem with letting others have more than what they're entitled to. The kingdom person is willing to give more than what that person even wants. So the kingdom person is able to keep this spirit of love, keep this spirit of generosity, and has this heart that wants to bless, that wants to help. They look for ways that they want to they help people. But you know what? It's not a law. It's not a commandment. Right? And remember that these aren't laws. These aren't commandments. These aren't um, orders. These aren't to-do lists. It's what's appropriate, right? If someone takes away your jacket, you might have a greater need of your shirt. Keep it. Right? And if you don't need the shirt, then give it away. If that's your only shirt, keep your shirt. But all of us have a lot of shirts. Take my jacket, right? take my shirt. But what, it's about what's appropriate. So the person who took your jacket also has a need for your shirt more than you do. Go ahead and part with your shirt because their need is greater than your need. But what if the person who took your jacket doesn't even need the jacket that they took? So then you don't have to feel that you're obligated to give them your shirt. Hey, wait a minute. Here, take my shirt too. You don't have to do that. They took your jacket. You obviously see that they have a jacket. Oh, all right, cool. You don't have to offer your shirt. All right, so what, what people take from you as appropriate, you give whatever is needed by that person and you help in ways that you reasonably can, that you appropriately can. And you don't give away your shirt that you really need, right, if they took your jacket. So say like you have this work meeting. You have this business deal to close and, 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 and it's for your family because if you don't close this deal, you're going to eat Top Ramen or something. And so they take your jacket. It's probably not appropriate to offer your shirt. 
Because you don't want to go in a business meeting without a shirt. It'd be kind of weird. Wouldn't it? So the idea behind the teaching is not to give everything you own away. right? It's to remain appropriately generous even though you've been taken advantage of. Even though someone's taken something away from you that you're not, okay, I'm closed off to the world. I'm never giving a thing again. People steal from me all the time. Forget it. And I know people like this from our church too where they've lived in East Oakland for decades. He's been robbed. He doesn't even know how many times he and his wife he doesn't know how many times he's been robbed. But he's so generous. He's so generous. He's so generous to a lot of people. He's generous to my family. But he's been taken advantage of so much here. His house has been broken into so many times. He's been robbed. They've taken like really, really sentimental things from him. Heirlooms of the family and stuff. But he's so generous. He still remains generous. Verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. The kingdom person is willing to give to those who ask. Or they're willing to, to give to people who, who ask, even if they have no entitlement towards asking. They have no relation to you. They have no family ties, no friendship ties. It's, it's just simply because they've asked, and, and it's not in hope of getting something in return, or an acknowledgement, or anything like that. Kingdom people... Don't ignore or avoid those who are begging or asking for something. How many of us are guilty of that? Right? You, you, someone asks you for something and you ignore them. Or you see them approaching and you walk the other way because you don't want to deal with them. And they don't give based off of reciprocity. And it's not a law. Right? It's, it's, it's on condition of what's appropriate. For example, let's say you borrowed money from someone or you promised to give money to someone. and So you've already earmarked that money. You've already earmarked that money to pay your debts or to, to give it to somebody else. So when somebody asks you for that, you're not free to give that money away. You've already promised to give it to somebody else or you've already, you already have a responsibility to pay your debt. You are not at liberty to give that to someone who asks. Right? So, it's not appropriate. Right? So if it doesn't interfere with your obligations, then go ahead. But don't be a liar about it. Right? Don't be like, oh yeah, I'll give. But then what about the debt that you owed? Or what about the person that you already promised? So you, you can't do that. Right? So we have, we have to assess the situation. It, it's not a law. This is not a law. God gives us the responsibility to evaluate all the factors and to have a kingdom heart in making decisions. And we have to judge if our our gifts of vulnerability, our time, our our goods, our resources, all that stuff, we have to evaluate what's appropriate. And it's case by case. And we're accountable to God for kingdom-minded decisions that we make. Now, if we just look at these as laws, what does it do? It takes away responsibility to live kingdom lives. How? Because instead of being kingdom-minded, it's because we have to. It's because we're obligated to. It's because it's on our to-do list and we become legalistic. So it it totally takes away responsibility. Because you're just a robot. Oh, he asked me, so I have to give. And you have no evaluation within having a kingdom mindset to, to make those types of decisions if this is appropriate. 
Is this right? So what about being how Jesus illustrated? Because that's just who we are. Not because it's a law and that's, that's what we do. But that it's an outflow of, of our heart, of our character, of what's happening inside. And teachings like this, you know, it, it often causes people to give up. Right? Because it's like, man, this is too hard. I can't do that. But these aren't laws. It's not telling you to do that. You don't have to do that. These aren't things that you have to do. Just as the Beatitudes are not laws, these instructions are not laws. These are illustrations of what a kingdom person will characteristically be in these circumstances. And not every circumstance is listed. So you think of your own Beatitudes, you think of your own illustrations, and you think of how does a kingdom heart fit into that? And it's more broad than this. These are just kind of illustrations. These are just the examples that are pulled out for Scripture. This is not an all-inclusive list of everything that can happen to you. Now, if we read this as law, couldn't we obey this in the wrong spirit? Couldn't we obey this with the wrong heart? Right? This is not about what you do as a Christian. This is about how we are, who we are, our state of being. So this is a description of the characteristic behaviors of a person with a kingdom heart and how a kingdom person expresses who they are at the center of their being, from their heart, not just during difficult times when they're hated or cursed or abused all the time. It's it's this person all the time, simply being people with goodness within all the time. And Jesus taught against those current beliefs of that day and he reverses them in the kingdom and the belief back then was to return harm for harm curse for curse jesus says in the kingdom we return good for evil and we resist for compelling reasons when it's appropriate and the belief back then was to to give to those who who had something to give back to you right oh if i if i lend to that person i can get something back later because you know they're well off or yeah it's family Or it's my friend. Jesus tells us to give because there's a need. Not because of who they are or what they can offer you back. They need it. Verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Ah, the golden rule. The golden rule. You think of all the ways you hope for others to treat you, you treat people the same way. That's what it is. You think how you want to be treated as you know, as you love, and as you follow God, and you think about that way, and you think about how you want other people to treat you to become that kind of a person, and now you do the same thing for those people. Now, the golden rule is not for certain circumstances. The golden rule is a lifestyle. It's an all-the-time thing. Every moment is available for us to exercise the golden rule. It's not dependent on your education, how much money you have, uh, whatever, anything material, whatever. The golden rule has us ask ourselves, what would I want if I was in that person's shoes? What would I want? And in asking that question, we have to use our creativity, we have to use our imagination, we have to use our intellect. It's not a law. We've got to use this. We've got to use this. And when we look at our church, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of those who come in our church and ask, what would I need if I were in that brother's or sister's shoes? What would I need? And looking at our community, put ourselves in those shoes and ask, what would I need if I were living here? 
If I were experiencing what people experience here, what do I need? And we need to do this as followers of Jesus. We need to do this as a church. And sometimes we can go about life as an individual or go about as a ministry or as a church without really finding out what the needs of people are. We think we know, but we don't. And we assume. Now, how do we go about finding out what people's needs are? You have to do something dangerous. You have to ask them. You have to talk to them. You have to communicate. You have to meet them. Find out their dreams. Find out their fears. Find out their hopes. Find out what they want for the people that they love. And don't assume. You know, so often we we think that we know what people need. And we think that we know what they want. But when you ask them, it's totally different. How do they want to be treated? Find out. and, And then seek God for guidance and for wisdom and ask him. Ask him, how, ask him how you've been treating people. How have you been treating this neighborhood? How have you been treating the church? And we as a church, we need to ask God how we've been treating our community. Now some people aren't in a healthy place in their life. And so if you put yourselves in their shoes and you think like them, then you're in trouble. So, so they demand things and they want things, and, but they're not really beneficial to them. Or they're, it's, not something, it's something that further cripples them or further enables them to continue living on the way that they're living. And you're not helping them. And that's why the verse says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. You take responsibility of thinking, of being creative, of imaginative, of using your intellect to think through what it is. You don't automatically just plug them in and if they have something unhealthy and you know that they want that, you don't give that to them. You got to think that through. So you find out and, and, and you seek and you pray and then you can act that way. Now keeping the golden rule in your life as, as you live your life, but it doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries. It doesn't mean that you cannot say no. You know, you, you can still do those things. It doesn't mean that you're just a doormat and you just, oh, but this is what I want. And, and Don't let people manipulate you. Isn't the golden rule blah, blah, blah? Because non-Christians know this verse. It's the second most quoted verse from non-Christians after judge. Not that you'd be judged. This is number two. The golden rule allows you to assertively live a good and right life without being manipulated, without being walked over. It allows us to put ourselves last and to be servants of all because of who Jesus is. Jesus teaches us how to live. And if you have any questions on how to conduct a golden rule life, all you got to do is look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his death on the cross. Look at his resurrection. Jesus was always appropriate. He wasn't a doormat. He wasn't always nice. But he also wasn't a punk. He always had the golden rule life. And what it all boiled down to was love. Love, the bottom line to Jesus' teaching on rightness and on goodness is love. Love doesn't illustrate. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Now people tend to interpret this passage as instructing them to be patient, instructing them to be kind, them to be non-envious, them to be non-boastful. But what Paul wrote is that love is those things, not you. Love is those things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love does those things. It's not us. Right? What we do is we pursue love. We pursue love. We catch love. Just like catching a cold. I caught this cold out of love. My two and a half year old was sick like three weeks ago, coughing up a lung and stuff, couldn't sleep at night unless she slept with us. And she always has to touch when, when she's sleeping with us. She cannot be on her own. There always has to be a touch. But not only just a touch, a squeeze. Right? And so it has to be my neck too. She has to squeeze my neck. And right in front of my face is this coughing kid. <coughs> I, I have to breathe. So I'm like, oh man, I gotta time this. But but so many times it's like I breathe, <clears throat> I'm breathing all these germs, and I'm like, ah. Oh. It's like ah. Oh. So now I I got this thing. I fought it for three and a half weeks, but I have lost. Anyway, we catch love, right? And we find that these things are being done by us. We we just do them, right? These godly behaviors, these godly actions, these are effects of dwelling in 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 a life of love. When when we become the type of person who is kind, who is patient, right? These things are difficult for a person who doesn't live in the kingdom, though. But once you enter the kingdom, once Jesus enters your life and the kingdom of God is open to you, what's difficult? Not changing. That's impossible. Not to transform. Not to regenerate. That is a really hard thing to do if the kingdom of God is open to you. You have no choice. You will be regenerated. You will transform. Jesus isn't calling us to do what he did. Jesus is calling us to be as he did, filled with love. We're not here to do what Jesus did. That's God. But we're to be like him. We're to be like Jesus. And many Christians are more concerned with following rules and behavior modification and doing the right things and having that right checklist and making sure things are right rather than becoming the type of person who, who naturally conforms to the scriptures because of who you are in here. That you're more focused on what you're doing on the outside. How can I portray to people that I'm a good Christian when inside you're just rotten? Work on the inside. It's going to come out. Work on your heart. It'll come out. Verse 32 and 33. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. The way Jesus instructs us to respond in love and goodness, it isn't dependent on how we benefit, right? There's a better way. There's a way to live in this peaceful harmony that, that allows us to live in this way with this relationship with God, and it gives us this right perspective on life, right? This everlasting perspective that realizes that God is in control and that we don't have to worry about how we benefit. We don't have to worry about how we look to people on the outside, and, and how we are portrayed because we, we have to act like we love people and do good to people. We don't have to worry about that because as Christians, you can be vulnerable because in the end, you're invulnerable. 
You've already received everything. You are a child of God. Everything within His kingdom is for you. Why are you looking for another benefit? Anything else is cheap. Right? I need recognition. I need to be paid back. I need this. I need that. And I'm not saying being unhealthy to where, oh, you don't find out what your needs are. We all have needs as humans. Yes, I know. But acknowledge that God has given you everything. And so when you give, you don't necessarily have to receive something back. Right? When you're, when you're abused, you don't have to necessarily pay that person back with abuse. You're a child of God. You've been given everything. Christianity isn't about the absence of doing wrong as much as it is the presence of doing right. Doing right. Loving people. Doing good to people. It's this assertive love. This asserted goodness. It's not the absence of hate. It's not the absence of wrong. Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 12 verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He doesn't say overcome evil by doing nothing. He says overcome evil with good. It's assertive. We're not to live our our Christian lives passively, nor are we to be this overly aggressive person who becomes obnoxious because they want to be noticed or that they want something in return, publicizing everything that they want to do. It's assertive. It's an assertive love. It's an assertive goodness. Verse 34 through 36 And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus desires for us a a life of freedom. Freedom in the kingdom. To do good, to love, to be merciful. Because we have kingdom hearts. Without any false motives such as recognition or getting something back in return. The proper way to do a good deed. The proper way to to exercise rightness is to expect nothing in return. You do it. You do it out of love. Do it out of love and goodness and your reward will be great. And we'll be like God in that He's loving, He's kind, He's merciful, even to those who are ungrateful, to those who are evil. The motivation to do good is only for God. It's not for the eyes of man. It's only for God. You do it for Him, to, to be like Him, to be like Jesus. Verses 37 and 38. Judge not and you will not be judged. That's the number one verse quoted by non Christians and known by all. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Although we are to give without expecting anything in return, there are things that when we give them out, when we dish them out, it comes back. Judgment. Condemnation, forgiveness, giving. Those are things you're going to get it back. Right? There's no way around it. You, let's take a look at judgment and condemnation. Judgment and condemnation, they always have this element of self-righteousness with it. Always. It's always attached to it. And it tends to breed this kind of comparison attitude. Right? So just recall a time when you were reprimanded by your parents. And for those who are perfect, I know you've never been reprimanded. But 
for those of us who have. My parents used to tell me, and of course it was in Chinese because it's a better phrase in Chinese. In English it's not funny at all, but in Chinese it's really funny. When I would eat too fast and I would choke on my food, they would say, don't eat so fast, no one's going to steal that from you. In kind of a condemning attitude with their chopsticks pointing at me. And they would do that, right? And it, and it happened that, yeah, I was, I was eating fast, and yes, I was choking on food. But what do you think happened when they choked on food? What do you think I did? You eat too fast. No one's going to steal food from you. Smart alecky kid, right? And then they go, whap! And they got these knuckles on my head, and so I got these knots on my head. Or I got the ear thing, the ear twist, like that. Wah! So I either got the backhand knuckle or the ear, ear thing. But, you know, we, we make comments like that when we're judged or when we're condemned, right? You look for opportunities. You look for it. So, so that's what happens when we judge or we, when we condemn. People look for opportunities for judgment, for condemnation. And so as parents, this is important for us to keep in mind because judgment and con- condemnation, those aren't good tools in parenting. These aren't good tools in any type of relationship, really. Friendship, uh, romantic relationship, anything, right? Why? Because it stirs up anger. And what's the nature of anger? The nature of anger is that it attacks. Now, what is the nature of an attack for, for the person being attacked? A counter, a counterattack. So it just kind of escalates, right? It escalates, it escalates, and then you get contempt. And then you have contempt. What, what does that do? Contempt is dangerous. Contempt leads to shame, it leads to guilt, it leads to self-condemnation. And those things are really dangerous. Self-condemnation, guilt, shame, what do those lead to? It could lead to physical injuries, abuses, it could lead to someone exercising violence on somebody else, so assault. It could lead to suicide, it could lead to various abuses, alcohol, drugs, It could lead to promiscuity or different types of lifestyles to try to get back at somebody. All sorts of things. How does that happen? One of the reasons is that in this kind of attack, counter-attack thing, it's it's usually not win-win. Usually someone feels slighted. Usually someone feels that they're not heard, that they don't have the upper hand, that it's not an equal playing field. So in the instance of parents who attack their kids... And their kids can't really counterattack, right? They don't have the verbal skills or they don't have the resources to be independent. They're dependent on a, a, a parent. And so kids look for other ways. Usually those ways are unhealthy. So they look for these ways to express their anger, express their shame, express their guilt, express this self-condemnation. So you got these things going on, whether it's promiscuity, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, or whatever, violence on other kids, or being a bully, or whatever it is. So we have to be mindful as parents as to how we deal with children, and be mindful of how we communicate with our spouses. If we're in a place of authority over whatever, over kids, we've got to be careful. Now how do we remedy that? Communication. Having an open dialogue. Don't close the dialogue. Right, So for parents, what are they guilty of saying? Because I said so. Case closed. What, what, are, you, what are you going to do? That's it. Closed. As long as you live under my roof. 
Case closed. Kid can't talk. It's going to come out some other way. Right? So, or, or, or say like in a spousal relationship. Where you, it's not necessarily something you say, but it's how you act. So you're washing your dishes and you throw your dishes. And you're wringing out the thing harder. I, I think you've closed communication. Because that spouse doesn't want the dish on their head. Right? Or, or, you, or you say some things that, like, that's it, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Close dialogue. That's it. We have to be careful. We have to be willing to talk. Willing to bring things out on the table and communicate, no matter how hard it is. The Bible tells us not to go to bed in our anger. Maybe... Maybe you can go to bed with the anger without talking. I, I find it really difficult. I find that I really need to talk. I need to get it out. And you ever wonder why so many people have so many issues later on in their life? When you're wondering, how come that person's so passive-aggressive? Why does that person have such a problem with authority? Why does that person have this perfectionist attitude? Why does that person procrastinate all the time? And you have all these things that are happening with adults, with people you would think, hey, why would you procrastinate that? Aren't you an adult? Or why, why would you have a problem with submission? Aren't you an adult? Haven't you learned that before? It's not necessarily their fault. I mean, you've got to look at how they were brought up. And as I do ministry longer and longer, and I, and I get to meet more and more people, most of their problems stem from their past. A lot of times it's from mom and dad. Something that happened there. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Judging, condemnation, those aren't good strategies for any relationship. It's not good in parenting. And a lot of us are feeling the effects of this now in our adulthood. Where we've been judged. Where we've been condemned. And we don't deal with this in healthy ways. right? We, if we want to direct people, if we want to help people in healthy ways, we have to leave the judgment and the condemnation behind us. We can't do it. We have to stop. right? And so what does judging and condemning do? What does it do? What does it tell the other person? It tells them, you're no good. You're of no value. You are bad. You're undesirable. You're worthless. You are rejected from me. I don't want any part of you. And that's not Jesus. That's, that's not Jesus at all. Jesus tells us, don't judge. Don't condemn. And so, just as judgment and condemnation, they result in judgment and condemnation, so do forgiveness and giving. And this is pretty awesome. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And it gives you this whole description of how much you will be given. Right? Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. It's basically telling you you're going to be saturated with this stuff. You're going to be filled with all this stuff. We are to be this way, not act this way. Be this way. It's in our character to be like this because that's how kingdom people are. That's how people who have Jesus in their life are, who have the kingdom of God open to them are. Why? Because that's how God is. That's how He is. God is forgiving. God is giving. Right? He, he, God provides food and rain for water 
for the unjust just as he does for the just. He provides the same gifts for us all. He provides the kingdom of God to the saint and to the sinner. That's God. He's so giving. He's not saying, "Mm, no, no, yes. It's provided to everybody. It's open to everybody, right? The kingdom of God is totally counterintuitive to our flesh, totally counterintuitive to our world. The world does not believe this, right? Think about your company that you work for. If you don't put in the right amount of time or the right amount of revenue stream coming in, you're out. They're not that gracious. Maybe for a little bit. Maybe you're put on probation or whatever. But it's not out of the goodness of their heart. I think it's because they're fear of employment laws. Of like, oh, are we firing them for the right reasons? Because I don't want that to come back to us. It's not because, oh, it's out of the goodness of our heart we want to do this. Very few. Maybe there are some. I don't know. Maybe I'm generalizing too much. But it's only by the power of God that we as Christians may be like this consistently all the time in our life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've accepted us, how you've forgiven us, and how you so generously give to us. You've shown to us how you've remained vulnerable, how you've remained generous, and then you instruct that to us at the end of this, this section of scripture here by saying, forgive and you will be forgiven, give and it will be given to you. And it wasn't just lip service for you, God. You did it. You showed us by your example. And so, Lord, as we look to you as our shepherd, as our master, as our Lord, as our Savior, I pray that you would equip us through your Holy Spirit to be like this. Not to act like it, but to be like this, that it naturally flows out of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.